My name is Sadia. And I'm Omer. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. In this episode, we're going to be chatting about Martin Scorsese's latest film, The Irishman, and the book that the film is based on, Charles Brandt's I Heard You Paint Houses. Our discussion will touch on the labor movement, the state, and organized crime. And what we really want to try to get at are the ways in which labor, the state, and organized crime interfaced with each other in post-war American capitalism. But before we get to the discussion, we have an announcement to make about a change we're making in the structure of the podcast. We've decided that we're going to stop making Patreon-exclusive content. All the content that we produce from now on will be made available to everyone. And we're going to go back and unlock all of the old Patreon-exclusive content so that everyone can freely access it. We're making this change because we thought about it and decided that paywalls are kind of lame. We think that even those people who aren't able to give us financial support through our Patreon should have the ability to listen to all of our content. We hope that our current Patreon supporters don't mind that we're making this change. And even though we won't be releasing Patreon-exclusive content anymore, we hope that our listeners will consider supporting us on Patreon, because that support is really crucial to the production of this podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast. All right, so with that out of the way, I guess we can get on to our discussion about The Irishman and I Heard You Paint Houses. So most people will know, of course, about Martin Scorsese's latest movie, The Irishman. And then if you've watched it all the way through to the end, you'll know when the credits come on, it says that the movie is based on a book. And the book is written by a guy who was a lawyer for the main character in the, in the movie, Frank Sheeran. And the book came about as a result of five years, I think, of interviews mm-hmm. that Brandt did with Sheeran about his life. So I do think that what we're offering in this discussion is unique, right? I don't know. Have you seen other reviews where where they actually go through and have a detailed discussion of the book as well? I actually haven't seen the book mentioned in any of the articles I've seen, nor in the Reddit distru- discussion thread about the Irishman. Yeah. So I mean, just this is just to say that we're we're not slouches here. You know, we went and did our homework, went out of our way to figure out what's going on with this movie and the backstory. And it's no thin book to read either. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a long book, but it was very interesting. So, and I'm I'm certainly happy to have gone through and read it. And I guess the best way to start would be to offer a summary. And I guess I would just say that the film it's about the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa was a really prominent labor leader from the 50s to the 70s in the U.S. Yeah, he was the president of the Teamsters Union in the United States, which was one of the most prominent unions in the country. And in 1975, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. To this day, the case around his disappearance remains unsolved. At some point, the FBI determined that it was uh, it could no longer continue to 
try to solve the case so they sort of just shut it down yeah and you know we might wonder someone like me might wonder who hadn't heard of Jimmy Hoffa until I watched this film why the government and the FBI would pursue the case of his disappearance as extensively or for as long as they did and i think it's a testament to how much of a celebrity he was both in the in the world of labor but also in uh, also his connections to organized crime and the mafia right so the film and this is of course where i suppose the spoilers start in case you don't want those uh, but uh, we obviously can't have this discussion without spoilers but the film charts what happened and the main character in the story is the person who eventually ended up pulling the trigger and murdering Jimmy Hoffa he was very close to Hoffa so this person's name is Frank Sheeran played by Robert De Niro in the film and he was also a labor leader within Teamsters uh, but also he had mob connections he was involved in particular with the Pennsylvania-based Buffalino family and was very close to the head of that family, Russell Buffalino, who's played by Joe Pesci in the film. And of course, uh, Jimmy Hoffa is played by Al Pacino. And so these are sort of the three main characters and the plot follows in particular Robert De Niro's character and his life's arc and how it leads him eventually to kill one of his closest friends. Yeah, I guess... You know, the, those three men are the story, even though Frank Sheeran, Robert De Niro's character, is the main character. The movie follows how he came to know Russell Buffalino, who, who, is, who ends up being the connecting force between Frank Sheeran and Jimmy Hoffa. And as leftists, the question I had was, well, doesn't this paint organized labor in a very bad light. Right, because it shows the connections between the mob and the Teamsters and shows that yeah, there's like brazen corruption. Uh, and, you know, it's true that Hoffa was involved with some, you know, he, he was involved with criminal elements within the mafia. And the Teamsters more generally, you know, as a union was quite corrupt. And the major piece of this corruption, of course, was the Teamsters pension fund which was a giant cache of money that Hoffa basically controlled as the president of that union. And the mob, what they would do is they would borrow money from Hoffa on relatively easy terms. Uh, and you know Hoffa and other people would perhaps take a little cut. Um, but there's other kinds of racketeering that go on. So Hoffa isn't the only person who's connected with the mob. There are people who are you know, they're, they're members of the Italian mafia. Like Hoffa himself wasn't, uh, but there are members of the Italian mafia who are labor leaders. They're, they have, they're presidents of union locals like uh, Tony Provenzano, who in the movie, he's featured quite prominently. He's, he's from the Genovese family in New York. And he is someone who is involved in brazen labor racketeering. And in the book, Brandt goes into how people like um, like Provenzano use their their positions within the union to make deals with the employers. So they, you know, they'll take basically bribes from the employers 
uh, to ensure that there's labor peace, you know, and so that the workers don't get too riled up. Um, so this kind of thing was a part of that time and that and, and that union in particular. But I think, you know, for the left, there's the question of, well, supposedly this was the height of the labor movement in the U.S. because this is post-World War II, about a third of workers in the U.S. at this time were unionized. And I think it, it's impossible to appreciate what Jimmy Hoffa represented without understanding that context. Right. And, and I, I do think it is difficult for us to imagine, um, certainly difficult for me to imagine, the role that labor unions played in everyday life and how prominent they were in people's lives. Uh, and Brandt has, a, in his book, he has just a, a description of how different it was. And, and he, you know, he has this part where he says, it is no doubt difficult for some people today to appreciate the degree of fame or infamy that Jimmy Hoffa enjoyed in his heyday and before his death. While in his heyday, he was the most powerful labor leader in the nation, how can that mean anything in these times when labor leaders are virtually unknown to the general public? However, in the first two years following World War II, there were a combined total of 8,000 strikes in 48 states. That's more than 160 separate strikes per year, per state. And many individual strikes were nationwide. And to a contemporary, a contemporary leftist like me, it would be easier to look back at that time and take those stats and say, okay, well, then that means labor was doing great. And that we would want to be part of organized labor than it would be it would be great, but that image of labor is spoiled knowing the, the contradictions that play out in the movie and the book. Jimmy Hoffa and Frank Sheeran, they're both at, at once like brutal and corrupt men, but they're also in many ways very committed and militant labor activists. Yeah, I mean, and I think that comes across like, and I don't think it's a m movie that portrays the labor movement in a bad light. The sense that I had was that that unions are, the Teamsters are doing things that are good for workers. That even Hoffa, who, whatever you might say about his ties to the mob and the tactics he uses and the corruption that he engages in, that he is genuinely committed to improving the lot of the working classes. Yeah, I, mean, I guess like the, it's impossible to to come out without having a sort of contradictory notion. Like on the one hand, it's sort of Hoffa and Frank Sheeran, they do fight for better working conditions, better pensions, better wages, contracts for their workers. At the same time, they are actively suppressing the development of the labor struggle. By taking, by basically being middlemen for the bosses, there's lots of drama that is more apparent in the book than it is in the movie about rank and filers who are getting sort of oppositional to labor leaders who then have to be taken care of sometimes in you know brutal ways. Right, and yeah, so in in Brandt's book, you get to hear about rank and file workers in the union who were calling for democratic reforms. 
who are sometimes murdered or you know who have their who who get hurt or or threatened and you know sometimes this is from the very top sometimes it's hafa who's doing this and other times it's you know other kinds of corrupt or criminal elements that have made their way into the union yeah and so i guess when when we look back we can't just say that okay well if we look back to the height of the of organized labor that it was all great so then how do we think about that time period while taking into account the kind of things that we are forced to face with the help of this film do we just say well despite the uh, union density that existed it, it was all corrupt and so therefore we should condemn it or how do we understand it and i i mean in in trying to come to terms with that i've you know i i think because we don't have very many concrete uh examples of of labor and the labor movement right in front of us and it doesn't have a an everyday sort of existence in our lives what we do have instead is this abstract notion of what labor is and what unions are and what they represent and of course as uh, for leftists they represent this thing that is contrasted to all of the things that are bad about this society right labor is stands in conflict with capital and so therefore it stands in conflict with the system and i think well while abstractly that may be true we do have to also come to terms with the really existing labor movement and really existing unions right because they are full of the contradictions of capitalist society including the corruptions that are a part of the society for the teamsters in the post-war period that that included uh their links to the mafia right i mean i think part of the left now is fairly dismissive of unions and the critiques that are usually made is that you know well unions are bureaucratized they are full of a particular class of people a particular you know racial representation that's mostly white people who are in unions and so they don't really figure into left struggle and actually and, and there is the critique that's usually made of unions that they are that they end up being top down that they end up not really being democratic and such they suppress worker militancy in the case of this film they do end up playing some of that role there is a certain kind of um an unaccountability a lack of democracy a kind of union boss led enterprise and yet that still ends up creating victories for workers and workers do end up being quite enthralled by their president Jimmy Hoffa and i mean they have good reason to look up to hoffa right he does win them good contracts you know he in the book there's a discussion about hoffa negotiating a master freight contract for all truckers in the country this seems like a pipe dream if you think about mm-hmm. wanting to do this now and i mean you know aside from whatever benefits the workers would gain from it i think it's clear from this movie that part of the motivations in these sort of large um uh, collective agreements or organizing is to centralize power is to like have that power be in the hands of people like Jimmy Hoffa 
so that they end up being able to control things much more. And they, then they can arm twist all sorts of trucking companies, both into giving the workers better contracts, but also in preventing workers or like in taking bribes from the trucking companies to prevent workers from, you know, being uh, too militant. Right. Yeah. And there's the other aspect too of the links, the interface between the mob and the state, right? And the story that we get. In, and this is where I find Frank Sheeran's account to have a kind of forest, forest Gumpian nature to it because he's involved in some way in everywhere and, and in everything, including, you know, the Kennedy assassination. Uh, <laughs> to, to what extent is is the account completely reliable? I, I mean, you, who knows, right? There, there are aspects, I'm sure, that are embellished. It is, despite that, it's quite interesting. And I'm sure that the broad in the broad story, it's true. And one of the pieces of the story, and you get a much more uh, a detailed account of it in the book, is the, the Kennedy assassination. And, and basically, the story we get is that Kennedy is murdered by the mob. Mm-hmm. And he's murdered by the mob because the mob sees him as one of their own, Right. And in, in the book, what we, we get this by hearing about uh, Kennedy Sr., who made his initial fortune bootlegging during the Prohibition era. And, you know, and he was involved with the Italian mafia at the time as well, or he had linkages with the Italian mafia. You know, and then when he, he became sort of clean and his children came into politics, they still had links with the mafia. And we learn about how uh, the mafia helped to get Kennedy elected. And, mm. you know, apparently they basically rigged the election in Illinois in particular to have Kennedy elected. Once he's elected, though, Kennedy turns on the mob, right? And his brother in particular, who's made attorney general, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy goes after the mob. He goes after, first of all, the Teamsters and the, the links that they have to the mafia. And then he goes after the bigwigs in the mafia on their own terms. So the story then that we're told is that the mafia, when they take out Kennedy, is really they're just taking out one of their own, one of their own that stepped out of line. Right. But I think partly also from the book, it suggested that Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy is only one of the problems that the mob has with um, JFK. Because the other problem is that the mob or the CIA and the mob came together to attempt to sort of organize the Bay of Pigs invasion into Cuba to try to get rid of Castro and then try to get Castro killed. But crucially, the reason, according to them, why it failed was because Kennedy was supposed to approve of air cover for that invasion and he neglected to provide that, which then meant that the whole uh, operation failed and that the the mafia wasn't able to get back um, its Cuba holdings, which were which was supposed to be a prime reason for why the mafia played the role in getting JFK uh, elected in the first place. Yeah, and this is again, you know, one of those Forrest Gump moments where Frank Sharon ends up being, the person who delivers the 
the weapons that are used in the Bay of Pigs operation by the Cuban exiles. So then I guess it's interesting. I mean, I'd be interested to think through, like, whereas on the one hand, you have, once again, a kind of symbiotic relationship between the state on the one hand and the mafia on the other hand. So there's the symbiotic relationship, for instance, between the CIA and the mob, and then you have the Kennedys and the mob. But then the Kennedys turn on the mob when they're actually in power. So in thinking through sort of like what is the logic, what is this contradictory logic of the state sort of relying on this criminal underworld, but then also being being in a position where it's actually trying to subdue it and undermine it and eventually get rid of it entirely. Um, and I was thinking about this and there is this sense in which, and you get this when you read about like the structure of the mafia, and then you get it from Brandt's book as well. But, you know, you get the sense that the mafia is uh, a kind of para-state, right? That it's organized uh, with an internal governance structure, that it has its own judicial sort of reasoning, um, and it meets out punishment where it needs to meet it out. And so in that sense, you see the interface between the state, the American state, and then this para-state, the mafia. Well, then you have to think like, okay, eventually... Obviously, there are these whatever symbiosis there might be in this relationship, there is also uh, a tendency towards conflict because the American state wants to establish and maintain a monopoly on violence, right? Uh, that's how it le- it maintains its legitimacy, and so it can't help but come into conflict with this parastate, even though it relies on this parastate to do its bidding from time to time. Yeah. So to pick up on what you were saying about the symbiotic relationship between the state and the mafia and that symbiotic relationship ending up in mutual destruction of the administration and the Kenyan administration and the mafia as a result of the relationship. Um, I think a few times in the book, I don't remember in the movie, but the comment was made or someone else, other people were quoted as saying, I think maybe even Robert... Bobby Kennedy was quoted as saying that Jimmy Hoffa has too much power and his power is only rivaled by the White House and or only rivaled by the president. And that, I think, the fact that it was framed that way a few times suggests that for Robert Kennedy, Hoffa wasn't just some sort of, uh, you know, too powerful union leader or too powerful, you know, mob connection figure, but powerful enough that it he was rivaling the state's power. And as you were saying, for the state to, it was necessary for the state to establish its monopoly of power and its monopoly of the use of force. I mean, it to me, it seems like a case of you know, inflating the size of your enemy mm. as a means to, uh, you know, have an excuse to go after them or, or to, you know. Right, to justify its actions. Yeah. Well, because, you know, under Robert Kennedy, there was, he put together what was called the Get Hoffa Squad. And so that seems like a bit extreme. If, was it, was that just a sort of means of getting at the mafia? Was the mafia the real problem for 
Robert Kennedy. And if so, why not just directly go for the mafia? And why go through Hoffa? Well, I guess uh, Bobby Kennedy was concerned about the role that the mafia was playing within the Teamsters and the linkages between the you know the Teamsters and the mafia. Um, but also, I think Bobby Kennedy is sort of a personification of the need of the state to establish its monopoly of force and to grow to its full-fledged kind of form because the American state has an interesting history. It's, uh, you know, it, it as a state, it's quite underdeveloped. Really, it only starts to develop into its modern form like with FDR and the New Deal and it gains increasing kinds of powers after the Second World War. And it's only really under the Kennedy administration and the administrations that come after it that the kind of powers that the FBI has come into existence. Right, and so at the time that we're seeing a lot of these events play out after World War II, the fact that there is that symbiotic relationship between the state and the mafia is perhaps an indication that the state is still like underdeveloped as a modern, developed sort of first world state. And the fact that you know, the Kennedy dynasty and other sort of ruling class dynasties will go, like seem to go far back into it, their history with the mafia suggests that the state like requires the mafia for, for its existence in, the, in that particular way. So like the figure of Bobby Kennedy then is, is significant because what the film shows uh, and what the book shows is that the mafia is really frustrated that it can't use or can't seem to be able to use any of its usual tactics to get Bobby Kennedy to back off. And you know, one of the one of the things in the book is that different godfathers of the mafia have tried to go talk to old man Kennedy and the father of uh, JFK and Robert Kennedy to because of his mob ties to try and get him to get his sons to back off. But it does, just doesn't seem to work. And so when they're frustrated, then they decide to uh, to kill JFK. But the fact that they that Robert Kennedy leaves them no other choice is interesting, that they have to resort to those sort of drastic tactics. And, I mean, this was the Cold War context, so, you know, Surely there were other reasons why America, you know, in the context of the Cold War, would have wanted to oust Castro from Cuba. But from the way that, you know, the book tells it and the movie tells it, is that a big part of what was the sort of background for why uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion was even attempted, or the CIA even tried to get Castro killed, was to protect the investments of the mafia. And so, you know, so in terms of what that suggests about American imperialism and and it being at the behest of capital, and then in this case, actually, like the mafia. I guess there, like, the goals of the mafia are aligned with the Cold War interests of the American state and its foreign policy. And, yeah, I mean, just using this opportunity to kind of say that it's interesting that that on the global stage, we still have 
an order that's you know run on lines that are not dissimilar to how a mafia functions mm -hmm. right like the uh, strongest states organize a commission mm -hmm. and they make the decisions led of course by the american state and then they impose these decisions on other states no matter what you know there's sort of some gestures towards what is legal and not legal mm -hmm. uh, in international law but doesn't really matter um and yeah just like the mafia had this commission right of the the four what is it five new york families mm -hmm. and several other families around the country no, I was just going to say that you would think that if there was any attempt at some consistency, then Castro's Cuba would be seen as more consistent with the labor, the organized labor kind of struggles in the States. But instead, I think even, I don't remember if Hoffa says much in the movie or in the book or comments on Castro or Cuba, but but it just seems to be taken in stride that, yeah, that just, that can't be allowed to continue. No, I, I think Hoffa makes anti-Castro remarks, doesn't he? And he says he criticizes the Kennedy administration for not being able to get Cuba right. In other words, not being able to carry out the Bay of Pigs invasion properly. So yeah, I mean, it, for Hoffa, he doesn't, have any solid doesn't stand in solidarity with the Cuban revolution and you could say that probably about most workers in the US at the time you know it's not as if there was a mass socialist movement that saw what happened in Cuba as a as having some alignment with the interests of american workers and this was part of like the the nature of the post war labor movement in the US and in Canada right it didn't really have a an orientation that was internationalist at all. It fought for and won significant gains in living standard for living standards for workers, but it didn't really care about imperialism. Mm -hmm. And when an, an anti-war movement did arise, it was largely led by students, you know, at the time of the Vietnam War. The unions weren't involved in the anti-Vietnam stuff? I actually don't know. <laughs> but the fact that we don't associate them with any of the anti-Vietnam stuff, I guess, suggest that maybe they weren't that much on the scene? I mean, I, I'm not, I really don't know. I mean, this might just be because of the lack of prominence that labor has in our understanding of even of our own history, that we don't associate the anti-war movement with having anything to do with labor. It might be the case. Mm. The fact that the Teamsters pension fund became the sort of capital that was behind all, all sorts of the mob's activities, you know, suggests that like there is a sort of systemic pull toward uh, within these things to go in the favor of capital and capitalism and not in the favor of workers. I, I guess there is a risk of over-exaggerating the extent to which, you know, of the corruption within the labor movement. And perhaps that's what these kind of narratives allow for? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, you were making a comment the other day about, you know, whenever we do see labor 
or, or you know, unions in particular in any sort of prominent way in Hollywood, it tends to be associated with some sort of corruption, some sort of thuggery, some sort of something that's shady going on. Right, yeah, I was just recounting how when Justin Podur was on the podcast, that was one of the comments he made. Um, and that was like, we did that like a few weeks before this movie came out. <laughs> so it's kind of uh, interesting. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was about how it's probably the case that, you know, unions today and the Teamsters today and the labor movement more generally is more democratic, less corrupt, probably has fewer, you know, direct links to the mafia. So what I, what I would say is that I think probably there's less corruption all around, except so much of the corruption I sort sort of rather than being sort of external to the state and probably external to the labor movement I don't know I wouldn't want to make any generalizations about the labor the nature of the labor movement it's so diminished now what can you even really say but the state is far more powerful and it's not as if the the state doesn't have corruption it's just the corruption that exists is, has been internalized mm -hmm. you know like instead of handing off money you know briefcases full of money to Nixon uh, in an underhanded way. Now, like campaign finance has been deregulated. You can just pay off anybody in whatever way you want. It's completely legal. Uh, and these people are, you know, raking in the money nonstop. So there's that, right? And then we see, you know, open sort of brazen corruption from which which people don't, you don't bat even an eye at, like what's happened recently in, in Canadian politics. Right. Or, you know, the Panama Papers and such. Nothing came out of that, really. You know, all this sort of offshore tax, even like where that money's coming from, where it's going, what it's funding, like what the paper trail is. Yeah, that's a really good point, like that these billionaires are just hiding their money. And nobody, nobody gets charged. Um, so here at York University, where we're based, one of the guys who was whose name came out in the Panama Papers Victor Dadele, he gave what, like $50 million or something to York University. And he got a, you know, they were, they gave him an honorary degree in law uh, to congratulate him for the donation. And they named the giant building after him. Yeah. And, and a new program, right? Program in global health or something. Oh. So, I mean, this is just, you know, like this kind of corruption is very much a part of all the institutions that we're a part of. And actually, th this is this is something about the tone of the film, I guess. You know, on the one hand, looking, when we watch the film, especially as we're going through it, it's like, there is a somewhat of a humorous element, right? Like, it's sort of like, basically, anybody can be bought off to do anything. And if they can't be bought off, then, that, then they must be, like, just whacked and, like, uh, and gotten rid of. Mm -hmm. But, largely this sort of like humorous undertone to a lot of the movie because we're just seeing money exchange hands and ev everyone from the very top the presidents or to the ver to the bottom in terms of like some butcher shop people can be bought off to do to either look the other way or do the thing that needs to be done but at the end of the movie there is this sort of dark sort of foreboding kind of uh tone that's set of like yeah that's that's just 
how things are and even if they even if it means that at the end of it nobody really benefits like everybody's dead and dead and gone so in the end what did it come to but still like that's just the world world we live in so th- there is no hope in the movie and i think the the in one of the articles i'd read there was one of the comments that was made was that this movie is a particular mafia movie made in the age of trump and this and the partic- and the kind of contemporary world we're in where everything just seems to be going to shit and it doesn't matter how many scandals we'll we see it doesn't matter how many like WikiLeaks stuff that we see like people barely bat an eye to even leftists now we hardly can bat an eye to like, all this sort of shit that we know so much more mm-hmm. and yet it it doesn't change anything it doesn't change that we still have to go through the motions of what we end up doing yeah yeah that's true i mean cuz you do have to live your life like york university may be a corrupt institution but we are still employed by it and yeah we earn a bit of money so we can pay our bills while the president of the university gets paid half a million dollars uh i mean yeah it's what do you do Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Oats for Breakfast. Remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com/oatsforbreakfast and becoming a patron of the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.